0: Welcome to the Sonoma Collective Podcast. We are a faith family practicing the way of Jesus together in beautiful Sonoma, California. If you'd like to learn more about Sonoma Collective, its ministries, or how you can support us financially, visit sonomacollective.com. This is the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, and this is the theme this week is love and all of advent is uh, again that word just comes from the latin adventus which means arrival or coming and so we have been anticipating uh this time it's uh, advent is that season before christmas before all the celebration begins it's more of a reflective sort of somber time uh and in the past traditions it's been more of a time of repentance and turning away uh, from sin and sort of preparing ourselves and so the question as we've been thinking about these themes of hope uh, faithful preparation for peace as we've been looking forward to joy Uh, and even this week of love, the question is, what have we been preparing for? What has all this waiting been? What has all this hoping been? What's this all about? Well, perhaps uh, Hollywood could give us an assist on this one. Um, What is the greatest Christmas movie of all time? I'm sure that sparks maybe uh, some debate amongst us. Uh, Maybe you're one of those who's into the classics. So It's a Wonderful Life or Miracle on 34th Street. Uh, Maybe Christmas Carol, or uh, my old school classic is Christmas Story. I'm from Ohio, so that was based in Ohio, so I'm a little partial to, you know, Fred Gile and all those fun things if you haven't seen that one. Uh, Maybe, though, you're more into the modern takes on the Christmas movie. Uh, Maybe you're more like Home Alone is your jam, or National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh, Love, actually, maybe you like the British take on it, uh, perhaps. Or Elf. Elf's become uh, pretty popular. Jingle Jangle's a new one, or... Actually, our family's new favorite is Klaus. I don't know if anybody's seen that one. Um, if you haven't, highly recommend it, that's a good one. But maybe you're in a different category altogether. Maybe you're in the more like eclectic, where Christmas isn't like the main theme, it's not in the title, it's more the backdrop of what's happening in the movie. Uh, Trading Places, Chevy Chase, Eddie Murphy, anybody? Um, Edward Scissorhands, Christmas movie, maybe you didn't think about that. Perhaps you're more into the scarier version, like Gremlins, maybe that's your, your approach. Or my favorite, Die Hard, um, yippee ki um, no, I would argue that those none of those actually are the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Uh, for my money, the uh, best take on Christmas and what it's all about is Princess Bride. you familiar. Princess Bride. Um, classic. Uh, it begins with a, a boy who's sick, a young Fred Savage, before his Wonder Years days. And his grandfather, Peter Falk, comes in and he says, I'm going to cheer you up and I'll read you a story. Of course, it's a love story, so Fred Savage is disgusted. He's like, oh, gosh, a love story. I don't want to hear this, Grandpa. And it's uh, about a a young farm boy named Wesley, and he falls in love with uh, the young Princess Buttercup. Um, But then he goes away for five years, and uh, he's presumed to be dead, and uh, there's lots of fun things happen. But uh, Princess Bride, I believe, to me, is the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Now, there's no Christmas trees in it, right? I don't even think there's snow. Uh, in this movie, but uh, the theme I believe really hits the nail on the head of what Christmas is all about. But before we kind of get there, uh, we have to ask ourselves: where does Christmas come from? Like, where, where our knowledge of it? Well, it comes to us from this book that's called the Bible. This these holy scriptures that we have in front of us. Now, this isn't really a book; it's more like a catalog of books, right? More like a library. There's 66 different books in this Bible. 39 from what we call the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. 27 of the new testament and there's all sorts of different literary genres in there there's narrative there's prose discourse there's historical there's uh, poems in there there's laws there's parables and this is written uh this collection of books was written over 1500 close to 2000 years by 40 different authors in three continents and in three different languages and yet despite that incredible diversity of authors and of genres and languages the bible displays an irrefutable unity of purpose uh, an undivided harmony of thought and an unfolding narrative that is both unified and progressive. It's just short, it's the greatest book of all time. It's the the highest selling book of all time. In the last 50 years, Business Insider projects that about 3.9 billion copies have been sold of the Bible in the last 50 years. Just to put it in perspective, Harry Potter, which I think is the next greatest, like all the catalog of those, about 300 or 400 million have been sold. I'm not, it pales in comparison to the number and the volume of these books that have been printed and purchased. And so one of the ways that we can see that unification through, yet through the diversity of this book is through patterns. There are patterns that are weaved all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Bible, and they, they show up from the beginning and through the end. These patterns repeat over and over and over again. And so the pattern uh, to help us get to the, the real meaning of Christmas today is this. It's, it starts with complaining, which then leads to rebellion, which ultimately results in pain for us, and then there's a rescue. And so we complain And we'll see that the, the, those that are being talked about in scripture, they complain about God. They then decide to choose to reject God or rebel against him, which then ultimately leads them to some pain. And then God comes in and rescues. And this is a pattern that gets repeated over and over again. It's like a wheel that revolves over and over, like the wheels on the bus round and round it goes. We just see it over and over and over again from beginning to end. Uh, this pattern first shows up in the garden, the very beginning, first few pages of scripture. Uh, where, where God has created humanity in His image to co-rule with Him, and everything is great, everything is good, and uh, then, there's, then there begins to be the seed of doubt that is sown. Like, is, is God giving you everything He promised? Is He holding out on you? And so, even though it's not outwardly verbalized, these complaints, you can tell there's some, some wrestling with Adam and Eve. They don't fully trust God, and so they decide to reject His commands and reject His invitation to trust Him in all ways, and so that, of course, then leads to some pain. That leads to them realizing, oh my gosh, th- th- there's, there's good and bad in the world. And, and now we're, we're separated from God and now they're afraid of God. And ultimately it results in their uh, being kicked out of this ideal state, this ideal place in God's presence with uninterrupted relationship, perfect harmony between God and one another. And then yet in the beginning of that, as God's saying, okay, well, we, we've got to keep them out of the garden lest they eat of the tree of, of life and eternal life and live in that state, because that's not how we are designed to live forever, he starts this rescue plan. And he says, look, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, the evil one, when ultimately there will be a redemption and this will all be made right again. And so this this pattern starts to emerge. And it doesn't take long for us to see the pattern again, uh, a few chapters later, um, things have really gone off the rails. Everyone is rejecting God and having nothing to do with them. And and in verse 11 of Genesis 6, it says that the earth was full of corruption and wickedness. Anybody relate to that today? It doesn't seem like that just changed over the last few thousand years. All right? full of corruption, full of wickedness. It's so bad, God says, look, I'm just going to start over again. I'm just going to choose this one. Guy and his family, Noah and his family. We're going to try and do this over again. We see this pattern continuing to emerge, and then after after the, the flood, then there's a family that emerges, and and God starts to begin to really enact His rescue plan. This, he starts what's called a covenant. It's a promise that He makes with us, even though we're flawed, even though we won't hold up our end of the bargain. God makes a promise: is that I'm going to I'm going to start something here with you, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you. Uh, and your family, a great nation, and through you and through your line, I'm going to bless the entire world. It's not just about you, Abraham, but I'm going to start with you, and through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And this then leads to him having a family. Uh, He has a son, Isaac, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob eventually gets his name changed to Israel, and he becomes a great nation. And they end up um, all the way down in Egypt. And then, then that family continues to grow, and 400 years later, that family has been in slavery. They've been oppressed by Egypt, by Pharaoh and several Pharaohs. They've been an oppressed people. And so they're crying out to God and saying, God, look at, look at our situation is what about the promises that you made to our forefather, the promises you made to Abraham. And of course they're complaining. I mean, who wouldn't complain in slavery, right? Things aren't good. And so they, they, even then, even in slavery, they're still not fully trusting God and they're going after different, different idols and different gods. And so God starts to make a plan to bring about rescue. He sees the pain that his people are in. And so he sends this guy Moses and says, Moses, through you, I'm going to deliver. I'm going to rescue my people. And that's exactly what he does. Uh, it says in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God, and you will know that I am your Lord, the, your God, who brought you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. So he saves his people. He rescues his people. He brings them out. And this is where the cycle starts to really pick up steam. We start to see this complaining and rebellion leading to pain and eventual rescue starts to go on repeat and the wheels start to spin a little bit faster. Now, again, remember, they've just been delivered. And, and I know it's hard to get your mind there to think, okay, imagine you've been in slavery. Your people have been in slavery for over 400 years. You've just been delivered. Through a miraculous signs and wonders, God has delivered you. And as you've left, these the people who've oppressed you for hundreds of years are giving you everything. They're giving you their gold and their jewelry and saying, please leave. And you're now free, not only free, but you've kind of been set up with like a good little start here with some like seed money to like start a new, uh, new nation. Right. And, and it's been about two weeks, two weeks since that's happened. You would think, do you would think there would be anything to complain about? Do you think that things were good? And yet we find that there starts to be this grumbling, this complaining, the people of Israel start, Israel start to complain to God saying, where's the water? We don't have any water. We're out here in the desert. Where's the meat? We don't have any meat. We just have this miracle bread that keeps showing up every day. That's not enough. We want some meat. I have blisters on my feet. Who died and made you boss Moses? And are we there yet? This promised land that you said that you're taking us to. A few weeks from walking away free from 400 years of slavery with their pockets overflowing with gold and with jewelry given to them by their very oppressors, they take that very treasure that they were given and they fashion it and make it into a golden calf and say, This is who delivered us from Egypt. This is the one who has saved us. And again, we see this pattern, complaining, rebellion, pain, and eventual rescue. And then eventually they, they make it to the promised land after a few fits and starts and an extra 40 years wandering in the desert because of their complaining and God warns them. He says, look, you're going to go into this new land. It's beautiful. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's everything that you'd want it to be, but be careful because those other nations around you, they're going to lead you astray. If you don't get rid of them, then you're going to fall prey to the things that they worship, the things that they think are gods that will deliver them. So be cautious, be careful. Of course, we probably can guess at this point what's going to happen, that they're not going to listen to God, and that's exactly what happens. And so they start to fall prey to these other idols. They start to worship these things. And I know for us in our our current context, this word idol, we don't use it very often, but it's things like fame, it's like wealth, it's even security or family or relationships. We start to place those things as the primary things in our life. When God say, I'm the only one fit to serve as the primary thing in your life, the one that you're going to worship and obey. You can't let those other things take my place. And so what happens is those other nations, they start to take over. They start to be oppressors to Israel. Here they are in the promised land. And yet because of their complaining, because they don't trust God, they rebel against him. They start worshiping false gods and false idols. It eventually leads to their pain. And of course, in their pain, they cry out to God and say, God, will you save us? Will you rescue us? And so he does over and over and over again. And we really see this pattern take shape in Judges in the Old Testament where God keeps sending these different deliverers for the nation of Israel. And like a wheel, this pattern just keeps spinning and spinning on the pages of scriptures. And eventually, after these Judges several hundred years, the, the people of Israel say, okay, you know what would really make this good for us? We need a king. Because we see all these other nations and they've got a king, so we want a king just like them. Of course, God says, well, wait a minute, I'm I'm your king. You don't need a king. They say, no, no, we really need a king. Like you're great in all God, but we need someone that we can like see and that can lead us and and do all that. And so all along this is happening. They rebel against God. Uh, they, they end up in pain and they cry out to him to rescue them. And all the time that this is happening, over hundreds and hundreds of years, God keeps sending these individuals to speak on his behalf. We call them prophets. And they keep saying, look, there's going to come a time where there's going to be this anointed one, this Messiah, this... This one, this son of man is often how he's referred to. And he's going to do the thing that we can't do for ourselves. He's not just going to bring temporary relief. He's going to actually fully rescue us. He's going to enact God's plan that he started way back in the garden. And he's going to bring about the, the rest, rest, restoration of all things. All along, he's pointing ahead to this. Now, at some point, if you're following the story or even just listening to what I'm saying, you probably are wondering to yourself, when are these guys going to get it? Like, when are they finally going to realize, like, if they just trust God, they wouldn't be in this cycle. They wouldn't need to re- rebel against him. It wouldn't lead to pain. They wouldn't need this rescue. Like, when are they finally going to get it? I know I, every time I read through the Old Testament, I just, I, I can't help. It's like watching a movie and you've already seen it you know what's going to happen. But like, you can't help like yelling out to the screen, like, don't go in there. Right. Or don't trust that guy. He's like, he's, he's not who he says he is. Like this. When you read scripture, you're just like, oh, don't, don't do it. Like, it's going to end up really badly for you if you don't trust God here. Like This happens over and over again, but the, as you start to ask that question, though, you start to realize, wait a minute, this is, this is kind of when the, the Bible, you think you're reading the Bible, but then you realize like, the Bible is actually reading you, and, and you realize, wait, this, this isn't so much about some particular humans that lived thousands or hundreds of years ago. This is about all humans. This is about humanity. This is just how we interact with God. This isn't just a story. This is the story. This is God's story. It's about the creator and his creation, and you know we always like to make ourselves the hero of the story, like we're the center of the universe, but it's about our relationship to God, the one who created all things, who made us in his image so to be in relationship with him and to love him and love each other. This is the story, and you see, it's not just about their hearts, it's about our hearts. This, this pattern that, that we see on the pages of scripture, it comes to life in our own lives. That we complain about our situation and we choose, you know what, God, I just, I don't think I can trust you anymore with this. And so I'm just going to take this in my own hands. And of course, then it leads us to our own level of pain and discomfort. And we get to a point where we're saying, okay, God, I, all right, I need you to come through, I, I need a rescue. I need something to, to break through here. Cause this just can't keep going. You see this it, complaining might sound different, right? The context may be different. Maybe you're not complaining that we don't have enough water or where's the beef or I have blisters on my feet. Or are we there yet? But they're the same complaints. Is that all you did today? Why don't the kids listen to me? I'm so frustrated at work. Why does so-and-so act this way? Like what's wrong with our government? Why I thought, why are things so expensive here? I thought it'd be further along at this point. Again, the, the context and the, the way those complaints sound, they might sound different, but at the, at the end of the day, it's, it's the same complaints because the truth is, it's not about our circumstances. That's not what we're complaining about. The problem is our own hearts. And see, it's a heart condition. It's not a circumstantial condition, because look, before you had a spouse, you complained about being lonely. And now you have a spouse and you complain about them. Before you had the job that you had, you used to complain about the job you had before or the fact you didn't have a job and now you complain about the job that you have. There was a time in your life where you complained, I don't have enough money. And now you have that money. You used to complain you didn't have and now you have that money. That's not enough. You complain that you still don't have enough. These are not our circumstances. They're going to change all the time. The complaints aren't rooted in the circumstances. Complaints are rooted in our heart. You see, it's a heart condition. It's a a disease. It's called sin, and we're all infected by it. We complain. We rebel. It leads to pain. So then, what's God's response in all this? Or maybe a better question is, what would your response be to this? Like, if you had people in your life that were constantly complaining, choosing not to listen to the advice that you give them, the help that you want to give them, and then you see them in pain, and then... What's your response to that? If anybody in the room's ever been a parent before, I know part of you wants to just be like, I'm done with this. Someone else take these kids, or perhaps it's your spouse. You want to get rid of, but that's not God's response. Is it he doesn't give up on us. He doesn't blame shift and say, this is your fault. Look, look at the mess you've created. He doesn't just like scrap the whole thing. Although he came close a couple of times, which is by the way, just makes it all the more believable for me that God is real that the fact that he was that close to just saying forget this whole human experiment thing No, his response is he rescues us he goes after us he says no you're worth it and I'm gonna bring about and I'm gonna I'm gonna save you look at some of his promises Isaiah 9 6 a for a child will be born for us a son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders he will be named wonderful counselor mighty God eternal father Prince of Peace Matthew one twenty one says, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And Romans 5, 8, but God proves his own love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And why, why would he rescue us? I mean, we wouldn't rescue each other half the time and we wouldn't even rescue ourselves a lot of the times. why? Why would he do this? Why would he rescue us? Well, I think Princess Bride gives us a little clue. We see young Wesley and, you know, he he makes famous this line as he's loving uh, and falling in love with Princess Buttercup. He says, as you wish, right? How many ladies in here would just love for their man to say, as you wish, all the time, as you wish. And so he goes away for five years, and, and he's presumed dead, and then Princess Buttercup gets um, betrothed to the evil uh, King Humperdinck, much to her uh, displeasure. And so she gets then captured, um, and she's taken away, and she's uh, been captive, and so the guys that capture her, they're on a, on a boat, and they're sailing away, and all of a sudden they see in the distance, they see a ship. And the ship keeps getting closer and closer, and they're trying to get away, but they can. They realize, oh, maybe this is the dread pirate Roberts, the pirate who is. Who's killed all kinds of people, this guy that's made famous. And so they think they'll, oh, we'll lose him by going to the cliffs of insanity. As so they go to the cliffs of insanity and they climb up to the top of it and think, surely we've we've bested him, but no, he starts climbing up uh, this pirate figure, this man in black starts climbing up to the, the, the top of the cliffs, and he gets to the top of the cliffs, and they have a secret weapon. They have a Spanish swordmaster who then is gonna you know, vanquish him. But unfortunately he gets bested by the man in black. He actually defeats the Spanish swordmaster and then he goes on and he defeats the giants. He outmuscles him and puts him in a headlock. As if that weren't enough, then he has to have a battle of wits with this Sicilian and he tricks him into drinking poison. And yet, none of that can stop uh, this man in black. And soon, uh, he then has Princess Buttercup. She thinks he's the Dread Pirate Roberts, which he is. And then she decides that the only way she can get away is she, uh, it takes a moment where he's distracted and pushes him over the cliff. And as he's falling down the cliff, he cries out and says, as you wish. And she instantly realizes, wait a minute, this is my Wesley. I've just pushed him over the cliff. What have I done? And so the natural response is I'm just going to throw myself down the cliff too. So much like Romeo and Juliet, she just throws herself over the cliff and she rolls all the way down to the bottom. And then realizes that this is her long lost love who she thought was dead. And they then have to survive the fire swamp and the quicksand and the RUSs and all those things. And yet the story's not over because then he gets captured and then gets tortured to almost dead. Mostly dead, actually. And yet nothing stops our young Wesley from going after Princess Buttercup. You see, that's the secret of Princess Bride. It's this pursuing love. This nothing's going to stop me, not a Spanish fencing master, not a giant, not a Sicilian mastermind, not the cliffs of insanity, the, none of these things, not even being mostly dead is going to stop me from pursuing you, my love, Princess Buttercup. And this is the secret of not only Princess Bride, this is what we're all longing for, isn't it? We all desire this. We all want to be intimately known, seen as valuable, accepted for who we are and, in, and pursued and loved. And in a word, it means that we are pursued. Every one of us, there's a deep longing within us that we want someone or there's somebody to see us like that and to say, you're yeah, worth it. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue to chase after you as long as I can. And yet when we think about this love that Wesley shows Princess Buttercup, God's pursuit of you, it makes Wesley look like a, a lazy couch surfing bum, quite honestly. And how he pursues you. You see, Advent is about one crucial thing. It's about God pursuing us. God pursuing you. He's coming after you. And look, he promises himself. We just read some of those promises. He gives himself. He gives himself to us. And then he finishes what he starts. That's the type of person. That's the type of God who's chasing after you. And all he asks for is our yes in return. That's it. He doesn't ask for us to get it right. He doesn't ask for us to never make mistakes. He just wants your yes as he pursues you. And that's what all our feeling has been about, our meditation, our pondering, our listening, as we've been going through Advent together. Okay, what are we anticipating? God, we're listening for you, and we're waiting for you. It's all about that in- incredible inbreaking of Christ into our midst, as He's pursuing us, and He's just continuing to go deeper and deeper in His love for us. Our teaching text it says, First John four ten, love consists in this: not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, it's always been about God pursuing you, God pursuing me. That's what we've been waiting for. That's what we've been anticipating. That's what we see with this with Christ being born to us. One of the names given to him is Emmanuel, God with us. Truly, he is God with us. He is the light piercing the darkness in our lives and the broken places so that he can bring healing and bring life to each and every one of us. That's why he came. It's the turning point in this great rescue plan that God initiated in the garden that ultimately will be fully culminated when he comes again. We are in this already, but not yet phase, right? Where God has come, Christ has come. 2,000 years ago, he came, he was born. Historically, uh, no one argues that this man named Jesus actually lived 2,000 years ago. But he also promised that he would come again. And in the second coming, he's going to make all things new again. He's going to bring together heaven and earth. He's going to make all the wrongs in your life right. We will be with him in eternity for all time. And so as we just think about this, what does this love look like? If, if you give me a, a moment just to kind of share a few just thoughts about this divine love that God is pursuing us with and that he'll never give up on us. Now, unlike other types of love, we, we don't have categories for it, right? When you go to the supermarket, right, there's all the different uh, greeting card catalogs. Like there's for wife, for mom, like there's all those different things. We have to just blow those up completely when we think about God's love for us. Like he doesn't fit neatly into our categories of love. He uh, redefines all those things. He's, you know, even the idyllic Wesley and Buttercup type of love doesn't even really paint the picture fully of what God's love for us looks like. I mean, first, we have to just remove any independent standards we have of Him because ultimately He's the one who defines it. Uh, earlier in this passage, as John's writing to encourage uh, young followers of Jesus in verse 8, it says, The one who does not love does not know God because God is love like it's it's who he is like he's the one who created it he's the one who defines it and so uh, I love uh, Thomas Brooks qu- quote on this he says the only ground of God's love is his love like it just we just have to start there is this is utterly unique so what are some things we do know about his love uh, if you still have your Bibles uh, flip to 136 Psalm 136 uh, a little bit earlier uh, in your in your Bibles there's 150 Psalms it's right in the middle of your scriptures Psalm 136, it's a song of praise. If you have titles in your Bible, it might say God's love is eternal. There are 26 verses in this Psalm. The first three implore us to praise God and to give him thanks. And then there's 22 verses that talk about what he's done and the promises that he has kept. And then the last verse, verse 26, once again invites us back into thanking God for all his goodness. But you might notice something as you're looking at that there. Every single one of those 26 verses ends the exact same way his faithful love endures forever over and over again like a repeat it's like a record on Skit. it's just his faithful love endures forever don't forget to give him thanks this is what he's done for you his faithful love endures forever over and over again now one of the things that uh, scripture is lacking is there are no um bold or highlights right we don't have that, that those weren't literary devices then so one of the ways that the, the, the writers of scripture let us know that things are important is they repeat things uh, they want to say, look, if, the, if you see it multiple times, this is like really important. Pay attention to this. And notice what the, what the author of the psalm is doing. Every single verse over and over and over again. And these were poems that were written. And a lot of times they were songs sung by God's people that over and over again to remind us and remind ourselves that his faithful love endures forever. God's love is faithful, meaning that he will never go back on his promise to you. Even when you're unfaithful to him. Even when you want nothing to do with God, He is the one who is faithful. This is also that His love endures, meaning that it has strength. It has lasting power. It's not going to run out. No matter how far you run from God or how much poor choices you've made or how unlovable you might feel you are, God's love is more powerful than that. It endures. And finally, it's forever. It lasts forever. It is eternal. Before you existed, God loved you. He is the beginning and end, the Alpha and Omega. There was no beginning of God or end of God. He is the uncaused cause. And so he has always loved you for all of eternity. He is limitless, which means his love for you will continue to grow without limit for all time. That is, you continue to exist. And if you say yes to Jesus, you'll be with him forever and you'll never reach the end of the love that he has for you. His faithful love endures forever. So one of the things about this holy divine love, this utterly unique love that we get to experience from God is that it is eternal and it will not run out. Uh, Romans 8, 38 and 39 says this, for I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a beautiful passage to remind us that nothing can separate you from God's love. Nothing done to you, nothing you do, not your circumstances, not where you live, not the language you speak, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Another way of understanding this, another way to get at this is that the only way that God can act towards you if you are his child, if you said yes to Jesus as Lord and Savior, if you've allowed him to be Lord of your life, is that the only way he can act towards you is by loving you. He can't do anything else. He is obligated to love you because that's who he is. But it's not a chore for him. It's not like he's put out for loving you, right? I mean, I'm sure you have some people in your life that it is a chore to love them. That's not how God sees you. He loves you and he actually likes you believe it or not. Even on the days you don't like yourself, he loves you and likes you and is continuing to pursue you. And so everything that he's brought into your life is an act of love. Whether that be pain or suffering or difficult circumstances, that's an act of love. Or whether it's a, a, it's a breakthrough or it's a blessing, so many that you can't count, they're all acts of love because it's the only way that God can interact with you. I may not feel like it at the time, like, why, why would he have me go through this? And yet all of it is for your good because it's loving. Like you don't just, as as a parent, you don't just give your kids everything they want. That's not loving. Right? That's just lazy. And I'm I'm there half the time. i got to be honest. Right? It's, when one of them says they, they want something, it's really easy to say no. But when like all three are like, oh man, it's hard. God bless you guys with more kids than that. Everything he brings into our life, trials, breakthroughs, all of it is an act of love because it's for our good and it forms us and shapes us more into who it is we're supposed to be. But as incredible as this divine love is as eternal and forever lasting as much as it endures as much as it's unstoppable you've got to receive that love for it to take effect i remember when i was learning how to drive um, my mom's Mazda 626 1987 is quite the vehicle and uh, it was a manual i don't even know if they make those anymore um it doesn't seem like it but I remember the hardest part was, was the clutch, right? Getting, the, getting it into gear, not grinding the gears, right? And just making sure I had to have the clutch engaged in order to shift the gears, right? Um, but even nowadays, even on, a, on an automatic, right? If you're stuck in neutral, you can have your foot planted to the floor on the gas and you're not moving an inch. Because unless that gearbox is engaged so that the axle can then take the power from the engine and apply it to the wheels and they can turn, you can't go anywhere. It's the same thing. We can sit up here and I could talk about how much God loves you and how it's going to last forever and it's going to pursue you everywhere to the, to the far ends of the world. But unless you say yes and receive it, it does you no good. Unless you're willing to engage, unless you're willing to say, okay, Lord, let me start receiving that love. It won't change a thing in your life. And yet the fact remains that he's still there pursuing you, loving you, wanting to be in relationship with you, willing to go to the ends of the earth to pursue you and to bring you back into relationship with him but love is ineffective unless it's received. And it's in that same spirit of Advent that Advent is just as much alive today as it was 2,000 years ago. As the people of God who hadn't heard from him for 400 years were waiting in the dark, like when is this Messiah, when is this promised one gonna show up? Just like in our lives we're we're crying out, God, when is this situation gonna change? When is this gonna break in my favor? Like when is this relationship finally gonna get restored? Or when is this this health issue that I have, when am I gonna see a, a relief from this? Like when is it gonna come? We all, in our own ways, are waiting in shadow. We're waiting in darkness, waiting for that light to penetrate. And it's in that, uh, it's in that spirit that we're waiting in, in, in our own advent. And God is continually being born in us as we learn day-to-day how to receive his love. A.W. Tozer says this, We pursue God because, and only because, he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. Just like as John lets us know that, look, it's not because we loved him, but he loved us first. That's how this all began. And look, Christ is there and he's knocking on the door. Uh, Revelation chapter three, the final uh, book in scripture, it says that Christ is knocking on the door, waiting for you to open it and to let him in. You see, because one of the things about God's love is that he will never force it upon you because that's not loving, is it? Like if you've got someone who's like forcing their love upon you, that's like uncomfortable, kind of stalker sometimes and even abusive, right? Like that's not loving. God's given us choice. He's given us the ability to say yes or no to his invitation. And he's going to knock and he's going to be there. And he's always waiting for you to say yes and invite him in. But he'll never force himself upon you. And this is what it looks like to have communion with God. It means to simply take the time to receive his love. To receive it into our minds, to our hearts, into our bodies. To find space, quiet in our life, as, as hard as that might be for some of us. And just to sit and receive and just say, God, I want to receive your love right now. Would you pour out your love and let me receive it? And that's not a one-time engagement it's not a one-time practice but it's a continual thing and if you start to do that you'll start to see something happening inside you you'll start to see and start to think about things differently but it's about us uh, being intentional i mean this isn't going to happen by accident you're not just going to walk in here some sunday or be doing the dishes all of a sudden and be like oh my gosh god loves me and maybe i mean god can do whatever he wants there are times when people have a profound experience like that where it just feels like the you know like everything stops and it's like wow I'm really sensing God's presence and praise God if that's how he encounters you. But the fact is, most of us is going to take, it's a habit we have to form. We have to create the space and the time to allow God to pour out his love into our lives. And this is what Christmas is all about, isn't it? It's about him living into uh, our lives. It's about us receiving his love and then turning that same love to the world around us. Because ultimately, as amazing as that divine love is from God, that utterly unique love that will never stop and will last forever, will pursue us everywhere, when we finally do receive it, something happens. We realize it isn't actually just for us alone. You see, we're meant to receive it so that we can then turn around and share it with others, so we can give it away to other people. I'm going to read to you guys uh, a little bit uh, larger passage, First uh, John, right around what, what our teaching text is. And I just want you to just to listen. You don't have to read in your Bibles. It's not going to be on the screen. I just want you to listen how many times John implores us to love other people. I'm going to start in First John 4, verse 7. He says this, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, if God loved us in this way, we must also love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son as the world's savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God remains in him and he in God. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Verse 18, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. I mean, again, on repeat, John saying, look, Yes, God's love for you is incredible and you need to receive it. But the whole point is that you can then turn around and love other people. Because if you're not doing that, then you've missed it. You still haven't figured it out. You still haven't received that love that God has for you. unless you've turned it around onto other people. And look, we discover this type of love when we finally start to quiet our lives a little bit, we, we get rid of some of the noise and we enter into the stillness of God's peace. And we start practicing this joy of living in relationship with God and receiving his love. And as we do that, we start to be transformed in ways that we can't even feel really or understand completely. But it's this revolution that starts to happen. There's this transformation that starts to happen. And then as that light starts to emerge more in our life, we start to shine that light to those around us, to our communities and to our families. And and, and in short, it's Christ who, through Jesus, God is pursuing his love to us and it's sowing some seeds. And those seeds are going to start to pursue other people. Uh, William Temple says this, Love of God is the root. Love of our neighbor, the fruit of the tree of life. Neither can exist without the other, but the one is cause and the other effect. If you say that you love God, there should be some evidence. What is that evidence? How well are you loving other people? And not just the ones that are easy to love, the ones that are difficult, challenging, the ones you'd rather not love, if you're being perfectly honest. The root, in order to do that, if you want to love people well, conversely, then you've got to be rooted in the love of God. You've got to be receiving that You have to have that affirmation, that confirmation, that satisfaction that you are seen, known and loved from God. If you then want to be able to pour out love to people that make it really difficult to love them. That's where the root comes from and the fruit will show itself. Uh, I love John Calvin's quote. He says, whatever a person may be like, we must still love them because we love God. So bad news today. You don't have any excuse. You've got to love the difficult ones. If, if you say that you love God, I mean, if you don't love God, that's fine. You don't have to love them at all. Don't worry about it. But if you're saying, no, no, I'm following Jesus and I'm doing my best. Then at some point we've got to start to be able to say, okay, even that person, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to love them. I'm going to try and show them the same pursuing love. God has shown me the one that never ends. It won't stop. That isn't counting my wrongs against me. And that still thinks that I'm worth going after just like Wesley going after princess buttercup. And look, as we start to receive his love for us and we allow it to transform us, we allow it to form us in deep and profound ways, then we will then naturally start to share that love with the world around us. That will be the outflow. And this is what Christmas is about. That God would dwell among us, that he would enter into squalor and he would enter into a really not glorious entrance into the world. You'd say, look, I'm willing to go into the dark places, the places that people have forgotten, the people on the margins. I'm willing to go there for us so that I can show you that I love you in ways that you can never understand fully, but that hopefully you can start to receive this Christmas. And as we start to receive that, we start to embrace this fact that we are known and loved despite our challenges, despite the things we don't get right. We can start to then free ourselves up and not be afraid anymore, start to love other people. Even if it costs us, because it will, if you really want to love difficult people, it'll cost you. There will be some sacrifice involved, but we will naturally respond When we start to receive this love with the angels just as they did on the night of his birth, we will start to proclaim with them glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests.